We are presently in what is known as the week of passion. It is Tuesday. Jesus has left Bethany and he's making his way back to the temple, making his way with the 12 to Jerusalem. As we saw last week, when Jesus arrives, when Jesus enters the temple, he's ambushed. There is waiting for him a group of religious leaders that are going to interrogate him. Unbeknownst to Jesus, as he arrives, boom, they, they spring on him like a cat. And thus begins a dialogue that will take place between the religious establishment and Jesus over the course of the day. Now, you should understand that this was not an accident. When Jesus presented himself on Sunday, there, Jerusalem, the triumphal entry, Jesus was not just presenting himself as the Messiah, as the awaited king. Rather, Jesus was, was also presenting himself as the Passover sacrifice, this being the week of Passover, Sunday being when the lambs were presented for inspection. The rest of the week, the remaining four days, this inspection would take place. This interrogation of the lambs would occur, ensuring that the sacrifice was spotless, was blameless, with, was without blemish. And so we see Jesus on Sunday being presented as the ultimate Passover sacrifice. We would no longer have need for temporary sacrifices. God would provide a permanent sacrifice, his son, Jesus, to take away the sins of the world. But after being presented, it was only customary for that sacrifice to undergo a rigorous inspection. And those responsible for ensuring that the inspection took place were the religious leaders. Now, as we'll see, they weren't exactly setting out to inspect Jesus as a sacrifice, but there were unintended consequences. Now, the religious establishment, they send three groups to Jesus to inspect him. First, we saw last week in Mark chapter 11, verse 27, that the religious powers to be, they sent the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. The priests were in charge with the comings and goings, the activity, the ministry of, of the temple. The scribes were supposed to be impartial, but their job was to interpret the law. They were the experts concerning scripture, the lawyers of the day. And then you had this third group, the elders. Now, there's some debate in regards to who this specific group uh, signifies. I'm of the opinion that they were probably members of the leading families of Israel, some of them making up the Sanhedrin, this ruling body, others of them simply being elders because of the respect of their families. The second group, we're told in they, verse 13, they sent to Jesus the high priest, probably his cronies, some Pharisees, the second group, and the Herodians, to catch Jesus in his words. And when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. For you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? So the first group, chief priests, scribes, the elders. The second group are the Pharisees and the Herodians. It's an unlikely group to come and approach Jesus because the Pharisees and the Herodians were often chief enemies of one another. As a matter of fact, the only person that they really hated more than each other was Jesus, which unified them. It was kind of an unholy alliance. The Pharisees 
you might consider to be the religious right. These were the religious, political fundamentalists. They were conservative. They held to a literal interpretation of Scripture. They viewed that this literal interpretation of Scripture should dictate the coming and goings of the political establishment. They were also nationalistic. They were very prideful in regards to Israel, their heritage, who they were as a people under God. The Herodians, they were also a political party, but they were non-religious. And a matter of fact, many people would even argue that they were traitorous. You see, the Herodians were a group of Jews who had saw that it was politically savvy to align themselves with King Herod. Herod had become basically the puppet master of the Roman Empire, a puppet ruler of Judea. So the Herodians were the Jews that said, hey, forget about the scripture, forget about being one nation under God. We are a people under Roman control, and so we should butter up to the Romans. Let's not make enemies out of this group of people. So they're unified, mainly in their hatred of Jesus, though everything else about their identity would place them completely against one another. Now the goal... The goal of the Pharisees, the Herodians, it's the same goal as the scribes and the priests and the elders. It's first to attack Jesus' ministry. And secondly, it was then to try to discredit his ministry in the attempts of minimizing his popularity. And why would they want to do that? They've hatched a plot. Their goal is to do Jesus in, to destroy Jesus. But the only thing hanging them up on this dastardly plan was Jesus' popularity. So if they could attack his authority and discredit his ministry, they would hope to minimize his popularity, trying to, as Mark says, catch him in his words. Now, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they, they come. They, they follow after the scribes, the elders, the priests have moved on. They come up. They're next, next up. And we're told they begin with flattery. I mean, look at it again. Teacher. We know that you are true and that you care about no one. Not, not in the sense that Jesus didn't care about people, but he didn't care about the opinion of other people. For you do not regard the person of men. But what do they say? But you, you teach the way of God in truth. Now, did they believe this? Now, there's no evidence to support the reality that the Pharisees or the Herodians believe this concerning Jesus. Now, they did, I would say, and it's probably an honest admission, see that Jesus didn't care what other people think, especially what they thought. I mean, I think that was probably self-evident. But they're buttering Jesus up. They're using flattery. I heard it said that, that flattery and insults, they raise the same question. What do you want? You know, when your kids come to you using flattering words, it's often because what? They really want to inflate your ego or they're just trying to get something. Flattery. Flattery, I love this definition. It's what someone will say to your face, but never say behind your back. No one would ever gossip using the same words that they use with flattery. Flattery is even something that Jesus warned. Luke chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus said, Whoa, whoa, woe to you. When men what? Speak evil? No, you need to be careful when men speak well of you. 
Why is this? Well, be, between flattery and admiration often flows a river of contempt. Let me give you a little nugget of truth. It's not wise. It's not wise to put a lot of stock into the insults that your enemies hurl towards you. They're your enemies. It's kind of what they do. And, and it's probably not wise equally to place a lot of stock into what your friends say to you, such as their flattering words and their inflating of your ego. And the reason why it's not often wise to overemphasize the words of your enemies or the words of your friends is that they're often both wrong. <laughs> that the truth is that you exist somewhere in the middle. You're not as bad as your enemies say you are, but you're also not as good as your friends say you are. Flattery. Now they present their question after buttering Jesus up, the haymaker. Is it lawful? Now the, Jesus is in the temple. He's in the outer court of the Gentiles. There are thousands of people. This is a scene. Jesus is this popular figure. The religious leaders are recognizable. This battle royale that's happening, there's an audience. So they asked, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? And you can sense this hush amongst the crowd. Oh, that's a good question. I mean, what is Jesus going to do? I mean, that's kind of like asking someone, hey, have you stopped beating your wife recently? I mean, how do you answer that? If I say, yeah, then I've admitted that I was beating my wife. But if I say no, then I'm just admitting that I'm beating my wife. Like, wait a second. Like, some questions are phrased in, in such a way that it kind of doesn't really give you an easy answer. Now, the big question of the day, the big topic, fascinating. A lot's changed, right? Big question. What do we do with taxes? Like, really, this whole tax thing. What should our position concerning the taxes be, Jesus, from a biblical angle? Now, you should note that this was a big point of contention between the Pharisees and the Herodians. And we'll explain in a moment. But before we do, there were three taxes that the Romans distributed throughout the empire. Three taxes. And if you think our taxes are exorbitant, place them in context to really what the Roman taxes weren't. First, they had an income tax. Brace yourself. 1% of your yearly wage was collected in income tax. Man, can you imagine how awesome that would be? 1%. Big topic of the day. Should we pay 1%? Secondly, there was what was called the poll tax. Now, the poll tax was interesting because the poll tax is basically a flat tax that the Romans levied throughout the empire based upon the census and how many people lived in the region. Don't forget the Romans were big on infrastructure, waterways and roads and increasing the quality of life even amongst the regions that they dominated. And so in order to figure out what we should charge an individual for their uses of roads and, and the Roman infrastructure, we have to kind of figure this out based upon how many people live in the area, and that's how often do they use the roads. And so they would issue a census. As a matter of fact, 4 BC, Caesar Augustus, uh, remember with Jesus, the whole world should be taxed, so Mary and Joseph had to go to Bethlehem. According to that census in 4 BC, the Romans decided that in regards to the area of Judea, 
that the poll tax should be one denarius a year. So that was the flat tax. So you had a 1% income tax, and then you had each individual, this head tax, the poll tax, you had to also throw in one denarius a year. A denarius to give you an equivalent was like one day's wage. I mean, you talk about heavy taxes, right? And the third setup was what was called the ground tax. According to Rome, 10% of all grain had to be taxed, 20% of all wine and fruit produce. So you had this income tax, poll tax, ground tax. This was a big source of debate, contention, should we or should we not? Now the Herodians, you had to keep in mind who they were. They saw paying taxes as a smart political move. I mean, why stir up the hornet's nest? I mean, the taxes aren't that bad. They're not that big. We should recognize Roman occupation. We should go ahead, pay taxes. We should keep the peace. I mean, this is the Herodians' angle. Now, that's easy for them to say because they were in line with Herod, who was in line with the Romans. So this was somewhat a self-grandizing. The Pharisees on the other side of things, they saw taxes not as a political move, but rather as a religious issue. Lots changed, right? A religious issue. They believed that the act of paying taxes to Caesar was indirectly conceding that Caesar was in charge or governing the people of God versus God. That They saw paying taxes in, in so many ways as idolatry. And so the Pharisees said, we shouldn't pay taxes because in paying taxes, we're acknowledging a foreign power's governance versus God's. And in paying taxes, it's an akin to a graven image. And so you had these guys, the Pharisees, they're saying we shouldn't pay taxes because it's a religious issue. The Herodians saying, well, it's just a political issue. And they approached Jesus wanting his answer. And really, the savviness of their question is that it presented an either-or scenario. Either Jesus agrees with the Herodian position that the Jews should acknowledge Roman governance, pay taxes, and in doing so, alienate half the people standing there, or Jesus sides with the Pharisees, upon which he would probably have been arrested for sedition against Rome, for encouraging people not to pay taxes. So these guys think they're clever. They come to Jesus. They think they got him in a trap. Gotcha. But Jesus, knowing what? Their hypocrisy. He said to them, why do you test me? And I can, I can sense there just being a pause. Are you serious? Of all the questions you can ask, this is it? So he asks, then to bring him a denarius. And he says that I, that I can see it. And so they brought it. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is on this, this coin? A little object lesson from Jesus. So they answered and they say, Caesar's. So Jesus, he answered them and he said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God's. Now, as we'll see, Jesus' reply here, it's really a stroke of genius. Because he's going to address both the heart of the Herodians' position, paying taxes to Rome, and he's going to calm the concerns of the Pharisees, which was pleasing God. 
They posed an either-or scenario, and they think they've got Jesus cornered. Jesus responds, though. His reply is not either-or, but rather both-and. He's going to kind of deal with both issues. And he begins by asking them for a denarius. He asks them to observe whose image, what the inscription said on the coin. You should note that a denarius It had the image on one side of Tiberius Caesar with the Roman inscription, Tiberius Caesar, the divine Augustus. On the other side of the coin was a image of a woman. The Roman priestess had an inscription that said Pontus Maximus. And so they replied, whose image? And they simply said, well, it's Caesar's. It's obvious. But then Jesus, he does something fascinating. He replies. He instructs them. He says, render then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Now, this word render, it's not a word we we use often. It's kind of an abnormal word, not not part of our our general conversation do we throw around the word render. But the word render, it literally means to give back to the one who gave out, to render back to a person who, who gave you whatever it was that you're rendering back. And so it's rooted in who owns it originally and who bestowed it to you, and thus you're giving it back to the original owner. You're rendering back to the person who gave it to you. The literal translation of what Jesus is saying here is give back to Caesar the things that Caesar has given to you. Now Jesus' approach, it begins... Like the way that he dissects their question, the way that he approaches his answer, is he encourages them to begin by identifying the object's giver. He holds up the coin. He says, whose image is on it? Identify it. And the way to identify it is to look for the giver's image. Well, it's Caesar's. Caesar's image, Caesar's coin. Jesus' second approach then follows. Okay, then if that's Caesar's coin because it has his image, then you need to give back to Caesar in accordance with the wishes of Caesar. If it's his coin, he gave it to you. However he might ask you to give it back, well, you should do it. That's only logical. This is as though Jesus is saying, since Caesar's image is stamped on your money, it's only appropriate that you should give it back to him as he's determined for you to give it back. Why? Because he owns it. It's his. Now, there's an observation we can't get around making. So brace yourself. You don't get this a lot at church. This is just Jesus. He is saying, and there's no wiggle room, no way around it. You need to pay your taxes. As a Christian, as a believer, you need to pay your taxes. doesn't matter how much or how little. You should pay your taxes. Though you might have earned your money, the truth is that your money exists because your government exists. It's called the Federal Reserve. Jesus is telling you, he's telling me, to pay taxes to the government or whatever human authority is over you as the government has determined for you to pay. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. That's not optional. It's pretty clear. Now, there are three thoughts that I want to present 
I think, concerning taxes in line with what Jesus is saying, this principle. First, paying your fair share, paying your taxes, your W-2, your 1099, including all of the documents, sending it in April 15th. This is not optional. That's first. You got to do it. Secondly, I also think in regards to the principle that Jesus is establishing, that it's within your right, in addition to paying your fair share of taxes, to also employ all deductions that the law allows you to utilize. Render to Caesar what is Caesar's. You need to render back to the government as the government has determined for you to render back, which means you, A, need to pay your fair share, but if the government allows you to make deductions, then you should make deductions because you are then rendering back to Caesar in regards to the law of what Caesar has asked you to render. And so if, it's, if, the, if the law says that you can write off certain business expenses, then you should write them off. You should use that as a deduction. If having children as dependents allows you to write certain things off on your tax, you should do that. It's within your right. You are simply being obedient by rendering back to the government as the government's determined you to render it. Charitable contribution. If you give of your tithes and offerings and you want to write that off, the government has said that you can do that, that that is within your right. And so in addition to paying taxes, I also think it's in line with Jesus rendering to Caesar what is Caesar's in the way that Caesar desires for you to take full advantage of all of these things. Hey, hire a smart, savvy tax accountant. Now pay your fair share, but take the deductions that, well, the government says you can take. I think there's a third thing that we can take within line of what Jesus is saying as a principle. Since the laws of our land allow, encourage, and were founded upon civil debate in the public square, it's okay to do so, then it's fine to engage in popular discourse as an American and as a Christian concerning taxes and the appropriation of tax funds. I think that's within your right. That's the country that we live in. Listen, if you want to take a few months out of your schedule and not bathe, and not shower and live in a community in Central Park amongst the rats, the tuberculosis, in regards to sticking it to those 1% that should be paying more, that's it's within your right. If you want to look ridiculous and dress up like a colonial and join together with Glenn Beck and march on DC saying, we're paying too much. You can look ridiculous. Go for it. It's within your right. As a Christian, I think it's biblical. Unlike Rome, in his Gettysburg address, Lincoln clearly stated, didn't he? That we live in a nation whose government, whose Caesar is of the people, by the people, and for the people. And until that changes, as Christians living in America, we are morally free to have a voice in the political process in regards to taxes and how our taxes are spent. It's within your right. So pay taxes, take deductions, engage in the debate. But when it's all said and done, Jesus makes a bigger point, doesn't he? Following his instruction to render to Caesar, 
which in doing so would satisfy the Herodians, right? I can see the Herodians saying, yes, Jesus follows this, doesn't he? By then addressing the Pharisees' concerns by saying what? You should render to Caesar what is Caesar. And then he says, but render to God the things that are God's. In context, in context, if we're to give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and how do we know what Caesar's? Well, they have his image stamped upon them, right? It's logical. Then Jesus is saying that we should then give back to God the things that has God's image stamped upon them. Now, Robbie Zacharias, he speculates that, that in the midst of this, after posing this question, that he paused. He, he poses this idea that then he says, render to God what is God. And he paused, thinking that the follow-up question should have logically been, what is God's image stamped upon? The answer we find in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. You don't have to turn there. You can jot it down. But what is God's image stamped upon? So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Since you have been created in the likeness of God, thus because his image is stamped upon you, it's now only logical that you should give back to God the very thing that he's given to you. And you should give it back to him as he's determined for you to give it back to him. And what is this? It's your life. That your very life has been given to you by God. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Well, what's Caesar? It's whatever has his image on it. And then you give it back to him however Caesar has determined. But then to God, you give back to God whatever God has given out or whatever has his image stamped upon it. Is that your money? No. God is not interested. Is that your things? No. Is that the trees? No. Is it the environment? Has God's image been stamped on the world? No. The thing that God's image has been stamped upon, which makes that thing unique to everything else, is you. That God has stamped his image on you. Thus, render to God the things that are God's. Your life is God's. You have his image, which means you should logically give it back in the way that he's asked. Jesus, it's brilliant because he not only answers their questions about taxes, but he also illustrates a more larger, pressing, challenging reality. Will you render to God the very life that has his image stamped upon it? The Pharisees. The Pharisees, why were they so concerned about taxes? Because they saw paying taxes as admitting what? that God wasn't sovereign over the people, but Rome. And they didn't like that. They thought that that wasn't pleasing to God. In addition to that, they also saw paying taxes as being displeasing to God because it would be uh, violating the commandment of a graven image, not having other gods before you. They were concerned. Their objection to taxes was because they were concerned about pleasing God. So Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar. And then he says, but you Pharisees, 
If you're concerned about pleasing to God, being pleasing to God, then you should not be concerned with your money. But you should be concerned with rendering back to God what has his image on it. And that is you. <laughs> I can see. I mean, once again, as we mentioned last week, like Twitter blows up. Hashtag boom. I mean, Jesus lowers it. He kills it. He answers the question. He diffuses the whole deal. And he levels a challenge. These guys had overlooked that God was more concerned with what they were doing with their lives than who they were paying taxes to. They had gotten distracted on a minor point and overlooked a major issue. I'm afraid that as Christians, we might be doing the same thing. And a culture that is mired in a very passionate debate as to who owns what in our world, we should instead consider a more pressing question. It's not who owns what in this world. The question we should be challenging our culture with, the question you should think of, is who owns you? If it's unjust that only 1% of Americans living in a land of opportunity hold the vast majority of American wealth created in large part by the majority, if that is unjust, that 1% hold all the wealth, we worked, it should be distributed, you know, then it's a greater travesty that we deny God what is his by right, 100% by right, and that's you. If we're holding 99% of the wealth to the majority of those who should have it is a great unjust, then what we are doing to God it's tragic. Now their response, they answered and they said, they marveled. They marveled at him. David Guzik, he says that in, in the answer of Jesus, God is glorified. Caesar is satisfied. The people are edified and his critics stupefied. I think he says it well. But sadly, as we've noted over and over and over again, though they marveled, they didn't respond, did they? It's not enough to marvel at the words of Jesus. We must submit to them. Well, then some Sadducees, this third group, who say there is no resurrection, they came to Jesus and they asked him saying, teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife, no children, that his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers, First took a wife, died, left no offspring. Second took her, he died, no offspring. Third likewise. So seven had married this woman, none of them had, had offspring. Last, the woman dies. I don't know how or at what point in that process someone starts investigating this woman, right? I mean, really. Son one, son two. If I'm the third one, I'm scratching my head thinking, I'm not sure I'm eating anything that this woman's cooking. So she dies. Therefore, in the resurrection, when all of them rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. This final group, the Sadducees, inspecting the Passover sacrifice. They're the liberal wing of Judaism. 
The Sadducees were the intellectuals. They were the Harvard grads. They prided themselves as being the rationalists within society. Mentioned by Josephus, also validated by Mark, the Sadducees had as one of their platforms the unbelief, the lack of a belief in the supernatural. And thus, they rejected the notion of the resurrection. You should also note that the Sadducees, in addition to being the intellectuals, the rationalists, were also very materialistic and hedonists. We'll leave that to a B-side. Now their question begins with a theological statement. Teacher, it's again a little flattery. Moses wrote to us that if a man, if his brother dies, he leaves his wife, there's no children, his brother should take his wife, raise up another offspring, and they, they, they lay out the whole thing. They're referencing Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 7 through 10, because Moses established kind of a real crazy, off-the-wall kind of principle. It was known as the Leverate marriage. Now, the Leverate marriage occurred when a brother of a deceased man was obligated to marry his brother's widow in order to provide an heir for his deceased brother. The Jews were big in regards to family lineage. You read through the Old Testament, you find a lot of lists of a lot of names, of a lot of genealogies, of a lot of people, and so-and-so begot so-and-so. They were big on family lineage, family names, and the reason is that each family was given what? A piece of property. And so you needed to have an heir, you needed to keep things within the family. So if the older brother died and had no heir, he needs an heir. And so it was the obligation of the next brother to marry the widow so that the firstborn son would not be his son, but would be viewed legally as the firstborn son of his deceased older brother. Thus, that man would carry on, or that offspring would carry on his family lineage. Now, the Sadducees, they continue by describing this situation where a widow ends up marrying all seven brothers. There's no heir. She dies. They ask Jesus, so in the resurrection, what's going to happen, Jesus? Now, it's obvious that their question is designed to make fun of what they didn't believe in, right? That they state this theological principle about the resurrection and the attempts of kind of making fun of the resurrection. I mean, that was their intention. But Jesus answered, verse 24, and he said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the scripture nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, note Jesus affirming the resurrection, neither marry nor are they given in marriage, but are instead like the angels in heaven. I love this line. Are you not therefore mistaken? Let me translate this into a more accurate approach of what Jesus is saying. They ask the question, and Jesus is standing there. There's an audience. And he looks at them, and he literally says, how ignorant can you guys possibly be? Like, you're Harvard grads. How moronic is this question? I mean, Jesus... He doesn't care about their feelings. Like he's not using pleasant terms. He's saying, you guys are morons. This is the stupidest question. I love it. And then he provides two reasons that they're so stupid or ignorant. 
He says, first, you don't know the scriptures. Now, the Sadducees, because they were the rationalists, they weren't the supernatural kids, they rejected all Jewish scripture with the exception of the first five books of the Bible. And thus, in seeing within the law, the Pentateuch, no evidence of supernaturalism or the resurrection, they find, found that as their basis, which is why they say, did not Moses say? And then Jesus, he says, you just don't even know what Moses says. You don't know the scriptures. You think you do, but you're ignorant of them. Nor do you know the power of God. You don't know what God has to say. You don't know the power of God. Meaning what? You don't know God. Shocking, you, you don't know much of the resurrection because you're going to be sorely disappointed where you go. Jesus, he begins here by explaining the flawed thinking behind their question. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He's saying, this is a stupid question because the scenario that you're painting and then the question that you're asking, well, in the resurrection, who is she married to? It's, it's, it's ignorant of what heaven is. You're ignorant of, of how heaven exists. See, Jesus begins here by addressing their faulty understanding of heaven. The Sadducees made a common but false assumption that heaven, life in heaven, was nothing more than a better version of life here on earth. And in some ways, we got to cut the Sadducees a little slack because we do the same thing. Most of us, when we think of heaven or we read a book on heaven, when we consider heaven, we often imagine heaven as a glorious, better version of earth. Now understand, the kingdom that's coming, where Jesus rules and reigns for a thousand years. That will be a better version of life on earth. But heaven, eternity, is not a better version of earth. It supersedes anything we could imagine. Now, why do we reach so many false assumptions? Well, we reach false assumptions because the truth of the matter is that when we think of heaven, or even when we read this scripture about heaven, it's people trying to describe heaven from an earthly vantage point. And so that's how we end up presenting it as a more glorified earth because we're using terms to describe something that's not earth, using terms that are limited. It's like when we try to describe things about God using a limited language, we're only left with anthropomorphic attributes. That's a fancy way of saying we're left with human terms to describe something that's not human or non-human terms. Like, like to describe God and his sovereignty and his great protection, we say, well, we rest under uh, the shadow of his wings. Does God have wings? No. We're trying to describe an attribute of God using language we can relate to. We do the same thing with heaven, and thus that leads sometimes to confusion. Let me say this about books written concerning heaven, mainly, and I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but when someone writes to you a book saying, yeah, I spent 90 seconds in heaven, let me tell you about it. I was dead for like 90 minutes or 90 seconds or a day. I don't know. I don't read the books because I think they're stupid. But here's the flawed approach to these books, and let me explain. The one person we know saw heaven was the Apostle Paul. 
In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul talks about seeing heaven. More than likely, probably in, in, uh, when he was stoned, he probably died. He saw heaven. He came back to life. I don't know. Paul says, I was taken to the third heaven. I saw heaven. And then what does he do? Write a book about it? No. He says, and I quote, I heard and saw things that were inexpressible, which would be unlawful for a man to utter. Paul, who is not one who do, who's like short on words or the ability to describe things. I mean, Paul can't figure out a run-on sentence. You know what I'm saying? I mean, Paul goes and goes and goes and goes. When he gets to heaven, he's like, I got nothing. Like, I can't, my words, like I can't. If I were to attempt to tell you what heaven's like, it would be unlawful for me. And that's the guy we know saw heaven. What other people are seeing, I don't know what it is or what it isn't. And that's great if they can make a few dollars off their book. But heaven, it blows our minds. It's beyond our wildest imagination. C.S. Lewis couldn't do service concerning heaven which is why he wrote more about hell. It's true. Life in heaven is of a completely different order than earth. And to give us an example of this, Jesus provides the example of human relationships. More importantly, or more specifically, the marriage relationship. Understand that when it comes to human relationships on earth, they're very much a matter of time and space, aren't they? Natural human relationships, or let's just get real specific. Your relationship with your spouse, my relationship with Jessica, has vastly been a byproduct of time and space. For example, at one point, my relationship with Jessica was nothing more than she was my sister in Christ, of which I didn't know. And then it ended up being an acquaintance. <laughs> Followed with a little flirtation, I'll be honest. And then it was kind of like, well, I guess we're friends now. And then it went from friend to suitor. She was really into me, and I kind of just went along with it for a while. Just kidding. So it goes from sister in Christ to acquaintance to friend to suitor. Same person relationship, progression along time and space. Sister in Christ, acquaintance, friend, suitor. Now I'm a boyfriend, girlfriend, fiance. It's French, you know. And then I suckered, in it, suckered her into marrying me. So now I'm husband. She can't get rid of me. But then after honeymoon period, our relationship develops, doesn't it? From lover to co-parent, <laughs> you know? From exciting to co-parent. <laughs> Vacations to co-parent, right? To, to our health care to co-parent, right? I mean, just everything becomes co-parent. And that lasts, I'm told, for a few years. And then you get back to honeymoon phase where you have a little extra money and you're 50-something and you buy a hot tub, right? 
It's like we're back all the way around. But then at some point, that relationship, as it continues to progress along time and space, at some point, it's going to end up being caregiver, isn't it? Probably will be me losing my mind and her having to take care of me to a point where now I'm, I'm, I'm crazy. And it's now progressing from like co-parent to caregiver, now to custodian. Same person, relationship, earth, all a product of time and space. You see how that works? Now, this is why then Jesus relates that relationship to heaven. Why? Because heaven, relationships in heaven are now no longer subject to what? To time and space. I'm no longer progressing from son to now father to grandfather. I don't, I don't need the progression anymore. Instead, our relationships center on God. This is why things are different in heaven. Now, before, before we get to the specifics of the question, understand that human relationships and experiences with individuals, they do transfer to heaven. As a matter of fact, I'd like to think that my best friend in heaven will, will be my best friend on earth. The person that I spend all of my time and most of my experiences, the person that, that I, I, I grew together with as we both served Jesus will be my greatest connection in heaven, my wife. But the basis of the relationship, the basis of that connection will be different. People, and this is where Jesus gets specific, will not be getting married in heaven. And earthly marriage relationships will not transfer in heaven, meaning that their question was ignorant. Jesus removes the essence of their question. Well, who will she be married to? You're stupid because there's not marriage. Like it's a totally different game in heaven. Let me explain this. Three quick points. First, marriage is designed by God here on earth for three purposes. Three reasons God designed marriage. Three reasons, mind you, that no longer exist in heaven. First, why are we married? It's to have a good time. Pleasure. Seriously. God designed you with a sex drive. Told you to marry a woman to fulfill the sex drive and have a good time with it. Pleasure. But here's the deal. In heaven, do we need another human being for pleasure? No. And you might be thinking, some of you single people, what? Huh? There's no nookie in heaven? There is no nookie in heaven. Why? Because you're not going to need the exchanging of bodily fluid to cause the sections of your brain to shoot off, saying this is awesome. Why? Because God will be the center of all of that. The essence of pleasure, of, of euphoria, the experientialness of it all will not be relegated to another person, but all of our pleasure, all of our satisfaction, all of our fulfillment will come from God. And let me tell you, I'm sure the creator can satisfy that section of your brain much more than your partner. So pleasure is not, not needed. So check that off the list. Okay, we don't need measure marriage in heaven for pleasure. But then it's also a picture, isn't it? I mean, in regards to scripture, it's marriage for pleasure. And it's a picture of what? Your relationship with your wife 
fellas, the Bible over and over and over again says, is a picture to the world of Jesus's relationship with the church. Which means if you're like trying to figure out how am I supposed to interact with this woman? It's very simple. You're supposed to do what Jesus did, which means you're supposed to enter her world and die there. Truth. That's what Jesus did. He entered our world because he loved us and he died there. And he preferred us and loved and cherished us. It's a picture of Jesus in the church. But do we need the picture anymore in heaven? No, guess what? The marriage has happened. Jesus is with us, the bride. There's no need for this symbolism or this picture. Oh, you checked the second one off the list. But the third thing is procreation. God told Adam and Eve, go make babies, populate the earth. Procreation was a purpose of marriage. But in heaven, there's no need for procreation. Just as the angels you know, there are a fixed number of angels and the heavenly host. And I know for some of you that, that bums you out. There are no baby angels getting their new wings in heaven. Doesn't exist. Doesn't happen. They don't fall from, fall from heaven and start flapping their wings. Like, there's a fixed number of the angelic heavenly hosts. The Bible tells us this. And just as, just like, and I think this is why Jesus brings up the angels, just like there's a fixed number of angels, when we get to heaven, there's a fixed number of people. That there's not procreation. That there's not like, the continuation of more people being born. There's no evidence for that at all in scripture. Now that's not to say that when we get to heaven, we're all like somehow weird, asexual, genderless beings. You know, when it comes to the angels, the angels are always presented with gender. Now, it happens to always be male, but they're presented as, as being gender. And I'm fully convinced, and I think the Bible presents the reality, that there will be men and women. So we're not asexual, we're not genderless, but there's no need for procreation. And thus, without the need for pleasure, or the picture, or procreation, then there's no need for marriage. That we have it all in Jesus. Now, as I said, I'd like to think that the experiences I take with me with Jessica will mean that Jessica and I will have a blast enjoying heaven together. I think the human connection, the relationship, I think that will transfer. Now, after addressing their question, he decides to address their flawed understanding. We're almost done. Of what scripture says concerning the resurrection. Because don't forget, the ultimate issue is their belief concerning the resurrection. But concerning the dead, verse 26 that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses? In the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, to Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Is he not the God of, of the dead, but of the living? Therefore, you are greatly mistaken. You're idiots. Because they only believed in the first five books, Jesus takes them to the first five books. You don't believe in the resurrection. This is your problem. Hey, do you remember the most common popular passage in Exodus? Moses with the burning bush. You, you recall? I, I sent so much sarcasm here. I love it with Jesus. Looking at these guys, these knuckleheads. And he's like, did you not, do you not even read the books that you claim are the only books that are authoritative? Why? Because, well, God says something interesting. He says that I am. He uses a present tense concerning his relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am the God. Now, why is that significant? They've been dead for 500 years. 
And yet God refers to these men in a present tense concerning his relationship. And so his logic is as follows. Since these men died in an earthly death 500 years ago, and God indicates to Moses that he has a present relationship with them, then there either must be a resurrection after death, or what? Or God's a liar. Moses's, God's statement to Moses in Exodus 3 is proof that he had a present relationship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The resurrection, it's provable even from the Pentateuch. Now, in conclusion, may you, a lot of things floating around, a lot of thoughts that we just covered, let me tie it together with two exhortations. First, may you render to God the life that he not only created you to have by creating you in his image and likeness, but, you, but may you render to him not just the life that he gave you by stamping his image upon you, but the life that he sent his only begotten son into the world as your Passover sacrifice to redeem from the destructive forces of sin. You've not just been stamped with the image of Jesus. That's not only your basis for rendering things back to God, your life back to God, but you should render it back to him because Jesus died to redeem it so you could render it back to him. But also know, God desires a relationship with you. Not only in the life that you have left here on this earth, but mainly he desires a relationship with you in the life to come. May it be said of you by God, for I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Marshall, and Zach, and Larry, and Matt. May you have a relationship with God. Not just for the here and now, but for eternity. Because there will come a point of death, but note that death is not the end of anything, but rather we're finally getting to the beginning of it all.